When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dr. Paul Offit, Pete Diddy, if you're nasty, welcome back to the show, man. Thank you. It's so good to see you, Z. It's been too long. It's been like six months or something. You know, I feel like there's a pandemic between us. Every, every time I tell my audience, I go, you know, I'm getting Paul back on the show this week. They go crazy. They've got a million questions for you. They actually, I don't know why, but they actually trust you because you've kind of co-invented a vaccine. You're a vaccine expert, but you don't in many ways, I think of you as the Pee Wee Herman of our time, kind of a loner, a rebel. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the reason I, I, I bring that up is that recently, and, and I wanna get into a bunch of stuff. We're gonna talk about kids' vaccines. We're gonna talk about Omicron-specific boosters. We're gonna talk about the state of vaccines currently, the state of the pandemic, all the things. But recently, you were part of the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, the Verb Pack, if you will, and you were one of two dissenting votes about an, a, an Omicron-specific updated vaccine in the fall. Let, let's start with that, maybe. Okay, so let me put it in context. The, the, um, the, I'll start from the beginning. In October, November of 2019, a strain, of, a, a bat coronavirus made its debut in the human population, right? The, 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 the so-called Wuhan 1 strain. Um, that's the strain against which all vaccines are made, the mRNA vaccines, the vectored virus vaccines, Novavax purified protein vaccines for that original strain. That's not the strain that left China. The strain that left China had a mutation at this, the amino acid number 614, it's called the D614G strain, that stabilized the virus and allowed it to become much more contagious. So that's the virus that swept through Asia, swept through Europe, swept through the United States, killed a couple hundred thousand people here. That was replaced by the alpha variant because it was more contagious. It was replaced by the delta variant because it was more contagious. All of those viruses, the, those three variant viruses, are well covered by that original vaccine that was made from that Wuhan strain. But then Omicron hit. And, and Omicron, unlike the others, where you had sort of a handful of mutations, Omicron had 30 mutations in the spike protein, either receptor binding domain or N-terminal domain. That made it immune evasive. Even if you'd been vaccinated, even if you'd been naturally infected, you could get a mild illness. Um, that was clear. And then what followed from there were the Omicron subvariants, which were somewhat distant from Omicron. Omicron is a so-called BA1 uh, variant. And then you have, you know, the BA2, BA2121, BA4, BA5. And that's where we are now. Where we are now is BA45 represents a little more than half of the circulating strains in this country. So reasonably, the, the FDA has considered trying to broaden our immunity. Because now that we sort of cross the Omicron threshold, wouldn't it make sense to broaden our immunity by including Omicron or an Omicron subvariant in the vaccine in a bivalent vaccine? So you still get the ancestral strain, which, which some people call the original recipe strain, which I like, but, but <laughs> and plus this, this, you know, the Omicron or an Omicron variant. Wait, so not to interrupt, but you're saying that BA5 is like new Coke? Like exactly maybe we- right. Can we actually send it back and go back to the ancestral uh, Coke? Which would be classic. 
Coke, right? Classic Coke, yes, exactly. Anyway, so back to you. So now we're up to BA5 and we're talking about this bivalent vaccine where you're including the older strain that was that we started this thing with and now the, the BA5, that's the proposal. Right, and so reasonable, reason, reasonable argument. So, so, so let's look at the data. So, so Moderna and Pfizer both presented at our meeting last Tuesday, which I think was June 28th, so a week ago. Um, and the data were not compelling. And here's why. They, they did the studies the right way. So they took people who had already received three doses of the ancestral strain and then gotten a fourth dose with the ancestral strain and compared that to three doses of the ancestral strain plus the fourth dose is the bivalent strain, which, can, which can, contains the Omicron mRNA vaccine as well as the ancestral vaccine. That's the right way to do the study. Then what they did was they looked for at neutralizing antibodies, virus-specific neutralizing antibodies against Omicron. And what they found was that when you got the Omicron boost, you had a 1.75-fold increase in neutralizing antibodies against Omicron. Well, the question is, what does that mean? What does that number mean? And, and the answer is, I think, while statistically significant, is I don't think that's a clinically significant difference. The, the reason I say that is because if you look at the original vaccines when they were um, authorized back in December 2020, Pfizer, Moderna back in mid-December 2020, there was a two-fold difference between Moderna and, Omicron, and, and uh, Pfizer regarding neutralizing antibodies. And Moderna had about a two-fold increase in neutralizing antibodies as compared to Pfizer. That did not translate into a clinically significant difference in terms of protection against severe disease, which is the goal of this vaccine. The goal of this vaccine is protecting against severe disease. Keep you out of the hospital, keep you out of the ICU, keep you out of the morgue. So I think that that 1.75 number was not significant. Secondly, it, it's Omicron's gone. So, so the, the real question is, does this protect against BA4, BA5? Now, both companies, interestingly, took presented data on now that you've gotten the fourth dose of this Omicron containing vaccine, they showed you what the neutralizing antibody titer was to BA4, BA5. What they didn't show you was what the neutralizing antibody titer to BA4, BA5 was if your fourth dose was the ancestral strain. They never showed those data. That's the obvious thing to do because that's why you have control groups to <laughs> control for your experiment. And I just found it odd that neither presented that. That, that bothered me. The other thing is that, that if you look at, um, say, experimental uh, uh, animal model studies, like recent, there was a non-human primate study done by Bob Cedar's lab at the NIH, was published in Cell, uh, Matthew Gagne, a G-A-G-N-E, was the first author. But what they did was what you, wanted, what you want to see from an experimental animal model. So, I mean, the, they had three doses of the ancestral strain, doses, two doses of the ancestral strain, then the Omicron boost with an Omicron challenge, right? No difference. No difference. Okay, so you don't really have animal model studies that support this. You don't have, as far as I'm concerned, neutralizing antibody study data that supports this. And I guess the thing, the thing that, that is most upsetting to me is normally when you get something from the FDA, when we have these meetings, and you usually get it a few days before you meet, you usually get a couple hundred pages. And actually before the June 14th meeting about pediatric vaccines, we got 440 pages to read about three days before the meeting. It assumes <laughs> that you don't have a life, which is true, but I don't think that they should assume that. So, so in any case, here on on the other hand, we, normally you get the, the EUA submission from the company, which is 85 to 100 pages long. And then you get the FDA's review of all those data. It really, really is heartening. I mean, it is a very thorough review. Not here. Here it was 22 pages from the FDA, which included a half a page on Pfizer's data and a half a page on Moderna's data. You could get that from the, the press release. In fact, there was no more detail, frankly, than the press release. So I just thought, 
the, the question we're being asked is, is in the end, always, is do the benefits outweigh the risks, even though the risks are generally small and sometimes unknown? That's always the question. Do the benefits of this vaccine outweigh the risks? I, I didn't see the benefits. I was surprised, actually, frankly, that of the 21 voting members, 19 voted yes, because I just didn't see the evidence for that. And we'll see how this plays out. I mean, this was something that I think they, the, that, that, that was, that was desired by this administration. I could be wrong, but the way that this, the other thing that was odd about this meeting was that we're an advisory committee. We're being asked for our advice. So normally what happens is they just present the data. Here's the data. What's your advice? And, and people can ignore our advice. I mean, I'm in, in academic medicine. People ignore my advice all the time. But make the best advice. So here, on the other hand, how they had somebody from the WHO, Contra Subaral, who presented uh, their, their opinion about this. And, and their opinion was they thought this was a good idea. And then you had the FDA presenting where they also had an opinion. That, that's unusual. Um, and then the next day, you know, you read a, a, a public health announcement from the uh, a, a, a press release from HHS, Health and Human Services, that says that the government has decided to purchase at least 105 million doses from Pfizer with up to 300 million doses. It was a little unclear from that press release, but they mentioned that we had just made this decision the day before. So you, you just sort of felt like the fix was in a little bit here. Maybe that's not the right phrase, but it was something that, that they wanted. And I felt like we were being led here with that, with, with a, a critical lack of information. So we'll see how this plays <laughs> out. But I, I, I didn't like this. Well, you know, this is, I mean, this is a, <laughs> you remember, Paul, in the early days of the pandemic, when we were talking about the possibility of a vaccine happening in a year, and you and I were both skeptical. And part of the skepticism was we were worried that it was going to get kind of steamrolled through in a politicized way that was gonna sacrifice the integrity of the process of review, the science, and potentially vaccine uptake across other vaccines if you screw this one up. And there was concern that Trump was gonna to try to rush it through, et cetera. Then the vaccine happens, and now we're expressing concern that, well, it just seems like it doesn't matter what politicians in office, there's always some kind of agenda. And there's always the concern that, is it influencing how we actually process these FDA type uh, strategies. And everything you said is, it, so let me just recap a little bit. Number one, they're looking at just neutralizing antibody levels in a way that doesn't even really quite take into account the control group, the way you pointed out. The idea that, okay, so it makes 1.75 the levels of neutral, neutralizing antibodies, but so did Moderna relative to Pfizer in the early days. And that did not translate into a nearly 2X fold improvement in prevention of severe disease or even infection. So these numbers do not necessarily correlate to efficacy. We're asking now for a logistic shift where potentially billions of dollars are at stake to transform a vaccine from the ancestral strain to a new bivalent strain, including these Omicron-specific boosters, without clear and compelling evidence that it's actually gonna improve the outcome we care about most, which is protection against severe disease. And yet it seems like the burden of proof for FDA seems to be going down and down and down instead of being at a level that you're comfortable with. Is that an accurate summary of what you said? No, exactly. And I think what has to be taken into account, which is why they have control groups, is the fact that 
If you look, for example, if you get two doses of the ancestral strain and then you get a third dose of the ancestral strain, you clearly get a boost in Omicron-specific neutralizing antibodies. So that, that third dose does that for you. Now, you could argue that in terms of protection against severe disease, if you're a healthy young person, two doses may still well have been enough. But you can't ignore the fact that that third dose does increase neutralizing antibodies against Omicron as well as BA4 and BA5. So that's why you have those control groups. And the fact that they, they didn't do that that part of the study where they, they show you the neutralizing antibodies against BA4, BA5 with the Omicron boost and then compared that to the pre-boost in that group instead of comparing it to the boost with the ancestral strain. I mean, Linda Safe just published recently an article in New England Journal of Medicine showing that if you look at healthcare workers and they get two doses of, of, of vaccine as compared to three doses of vaccine, they clearly get a boost not only against BA1, but against BA4, BA5. So, so what are you gaining by giving Omicron? or BA4, BA5, because remember, it's a new product. And I think, you know, that we don't have a bivalent vaccine. And, and I think if, if anything, if we've been taught anything over the last two and a half years, it's the humility of, 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 of introducing a new product. I mean, no one would have predicted myocarditis associated with mRNA vaccines. I don't think anybody would have predicted this clotting problem, so-called thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome. So be humble. And if you, if you're going to, you know, if you clearly have evidence of benefit, um, great. But if you don't clearly don't have evidence of benefit, then then say no. And, and it just um, surprised me that we were willing to go forward with this with such scant evidence of benefit. I think that the phrase that I used was uncomfortably scant was what I said during the meeting. And you're one of just two dissenters out of the 19 votes. 21 so, votes. Yeah. So it was 19 yeah. to I see, I see. So, you know, this is, um, I mean, that is concerning. And I, you point at the humility. So with Johnson & Johnson, like you said, no one would have really predicted this very unusual clotting syndrome that, that what, 10 fatalities, I think, documented. Um, you have a stat uh, news article opinion piece on all of this that I'm going to link to that's very, very well done um, with a colleague you wrote. And I, I think what's interesting is, so there's a couple things I want to dive into that you were talking about. One is this idea of the Booster versus is this actually a third dose? In other words, is it necessary to get an Omicron, uh, a more Omicron specific and robust response for the general population? Or is it just in particular subgroups like high risk people, people that are older that would require that where we would cause call that third dose a third dose instead of a booster that just tops off your neutralizing antibodies? Do so you get some short lived protection against infection, but you've already got protection against severe disease? Curious on your thoughts on that. And that's the question of the day. Uh, I think when in December of 2020, um, we launched those two vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, I got calls from two people who are very prominent in this field. I mean, people who I really respect, who said to me, this is a three-dose vaccine. The reason it's a three-dose vaccine is if you look at, say, the purified protein vaccines, like the, the, uh, the, the hepatitis B vaccine or the uh, human papillomavirus vaccine, or you look at the whole killed viral vaccines like polio or hepatitis A, you really need a four to six month interval between doses to get the kind of frequencies of memory B and T cells that will give you long-lived protection against serious illness. I believe that but was waiting for evidence to see it because we don't have any experience with this vaccine. mRNA technology is a new technology. And what you saw six months after that vaccine came out, like June, July, was that the, the epidemiologically protection against severe disease was holding up. And with the uh, clinical study, the uh, immunological studies by people like John Weary and Shane Karate, you saw that the frequencies of memory B and T cells was holding up. 
Then 12 months later, i.e. December of, of 2021, you still saw that this was a Mark Telford paper that was published uh, in Clinical Infectious Diseases out of the CDC, that at least through the Delta wave, that you still had excellent protection against severe disease and you still had high levels of memory B and T cells. So therefore, that, that, that advice early on wasn't holding up. Then Omicron hit, and, and that sort of threw a wrench into things because now you had a lot of people who were getting infected um, who were otherwise vaccinated. And so then the question is, why? Because there, there was an increase in hospitalization and there was an increase in deaths. And the question was who? And see, you said it. I think if you looked at who that was, it was primarily people who were the elderly, and I mean really elderly, even more elderly than me, and people who, were, who had you know, really the kinds of comorbidity either, or were immune compromised. Or were or had um, you know the kinds of comorbidities that really do put you at high risk. And I think what was happening there was not that they needed a boost in memory because it's not easy to boost memory. I think what was happening there is they just couldn't handle that infection that because they didn't let's say they didn't make adequate cytotoxic T cell responses. So a mild or moderate infection to them was a problem. And so therefore you could help them by boosting neutralizing antibodies for a short period of time, three to six months, and then help them at least get through the the period of that Omicron wave. So that's different. And, and um, so I'm still not sure that, you know, I still you could still argue that a healthy young person, a person less than, say, 60 years of age, still has long term protection against serious illness because you still you're protected. There's enough memory to protect you against serious illness, even with these variants. And that's the good news. I mean, that you haven't yet had what you most fear. What I most fear is the, the a variant that is resistant, even if you're vaccinated or, or naturally infected or both, that you're still at that you're still at risk of serious illness. And that variant hasn't happened yet. So you could make an argument that that's when you need to add a variant specific vaccine, but we're not there yet. Okay, this is very important. What you just said is crucial for people's understanding. The idea that when Omicron hit, because you and I were both kind of booster skeptics um, early on in the sense that we needed to see the data about severe disease. And what you're saying is when Omicron hit, so many people were infected because Omicron does kind of escape the, you know, it, it, again, it's not it's not a breakthrough. Even that term, like you said early on, it's a terrible term. The vaccine is not really designed to prevent infection. It's designed to prevent severe. I mean, that's the goal of the vaccine. So people were getting infected. And this is the deal. And I'll use my dad as an example. So my dad is 82. He was admitted to the hospital this year because he has COPD from living in polluted environments. He never smoked, has restrictive lung disease from kyphosis and has a paralyzed hemidiaphragm from a, a, a hiatal hernia surgery years ago. And on top of that, he has AFib and some hypertension and is on blood thinners. So he's not the best protoplasm. He got sick with hyponatremia, something got admitted, ended up going to a nursing home. I go to visit him in the nursing home and he just looks terrible. And he hadn't, he'd been getting better. And I asked the staff, I go, you know, was he tested on admission? Yeah, he was. Can you test him again? They test him, he's positive for COVID. And that, that COVID infection with presumably Omicron, he's been boosted. He didn't get a fourth dose, but he had three doses and a booster. And that infection itself was not, it did not seem to be causing the havoc. It just was enough to push a guy in that degree of infirmity over the edge to require rehospitalization. 
He never needed Paxlovid or anything. He got some dexamethasone, but he did fine. It was the other diseases that were thrown out of equilibrium. And I think a, a bad cold, a mild flu could have done the same thing. So where would a fourth dose have been helpful there? Well, right before, if his neutralizing antibodies might have been topped up, he might have had more resistance to infection that might have prevented that. So that's the case study, I think, where that thing really makes sense. But and, and tell me, am I wrong or am I crazy? I think that's exactly right. And I, th I think that's what the CDC can help us most, is instead of showing us, for example, as they have in a recent uh, publication that you see that look at uh, sort of two doses versus three doses for Omicron, and you see clearly better protection against serious illness in those who got the third as compared to just, just two doses, who are those people? Who are they? And, 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 and because we need to define them, because if we don't, and we don't do a very good job of this, then everybody gets recommended to receive it. And, and I just think, you know, not everybody benefits. And now, now this and this points right back at not everybody benefits, but yet as a policy tool, many colleges have been mandating a third dose in order for kids to att attend virtual graduation even. So, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on the sort of policy hammer of mandate with something like a booster for young people? No, it's hard to watch, actually. I mean, my uh, my uh, daughter's fiance, she's getting married next year. Um, Congrats. He, you know, he's at, he's at a, he's a, he was at Cornell and he, you know, he's a healthy 20, 20 plus year old and he was mandated to get a third dose of vaccine before he could go back on campus. It's wrong. I mean, he was protected with two doses. It's just wrong. It's not, it just uh, was unfair. You know, it's kind of heartbreaking because you're a massive vaccine advocate. I mean, you've dedicated your life to this and you've written books about it. And and what's interesting is it's harming. Like when, when these young people email me, they say, you know, what can I do about this? Like I've gotten two doses. I've had actually infection with COVID. They're mandating I get a third dose. I feel like my bodily autonomy is violated for no community benefit. Like these are idealistic young people. They're willing to take, you know, a hit to their own autonomous decision if it's gonna help other people, but they don't see the evidence for that. And that's where it just gets ugly. I agree. Yeah. So. So I have a question. So as we get these BA5, you know, we're up to BA5, BA4, 5 is the predominant strain in the country right now. Um, where do the old variants go? Because many people ask these questions. Are they extinct? Are they hiding somewhere? Are they in an animal reservoir? What's going on with that? They're just outcompeted. I think so. So they become just less and less as a circulating strain. This virus outcompetes them. I mean, it, it's interesting that it doesn't appear that... Um, well, it's hard to know what, whether these viruses are more virulent because you're up to now like 80 to 90% population immunity. So um, it's not where we were two years ago, where it was much easier to say virulence because you didn't have, you had people who truly were naive. It's the rare person who's naive. I think what's going to be really interesting is what happens this winter because it's, uh, although the virus can clearly circulate year round and cause harm year round, if you look at the last two winters, there clearly is a bump once you start to get to November, December, January in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. And so now you have such a high level of population immunity. I, I suspect there'll be a bump, but I think it's going to be a little bump. It'll be, I'm really curious to see how this virus plays out because no one predicted that it would mutate to the degree that, that it does. I mean, I know it's a single-stranded RNA virus, but, you know, there's other single-stranded RNA viruses that don't mutate like this. I mean, measles is a single-stranded RNA virus. We could eliminate it with vaccination. Rubella is a single-stranded RNA virus. We could eliminate it with vaccination. They're not, they're not all the same. Um, this one is, is different than I think what would have been predicted. Yeah, and you know what? what's interesting about this whole dynamic is it is a dynamic. We can't take COVID and pull it out of isolation 
uh, you have to put it in the context of you have a, it's now almost like a constant flu pressure on the elderly infirm population or the people with multiple co comorbidities where it's year round, there's like a new variant that's so contagious that everybody's getting it. And we didn't, we don't really normally have that. We have our normal complement of, of viruses that we're quite used to and we have some immunity to and they're quite seasonal. And, and this has kind of thrown us for a loop in that sense. So it wouldn't surprise me if we see some uptake in deaths in that population, um, even with 90 plus percent population immunity between natural infection and vaccine infection, um, it wouldn't be a surprise. And, and one related question to that. So now with kids, which we're gonna get into kids vaccination and all of that, with kids, because of our behavioral changes, we've masked young kids, we've taken them out of school for a bit, put them back in, we've kind of been quite cautious with kids, especially parents that are worried since there wasn't a vaccine and so on. And have we, and now we see changes in patterns of viral infections that have been quite standard for years, like RSV, influenza. What are your thoughts on this in, in the context of whether it's hygiene hypothesis or just the general viral milieu that we're around? How has COVID thrown that into disarray? Well, it certainly did the first year. I mean, when we just, you know, closed businesses, shut down, you know, closed schools, um, you know, restricted travel, everybody wears masks, social distance. We didn't, you know, sporting events were not attended by groups of people. I mean, large groups of people. That first year, flu disappeared. I mean, you know, we, we normally have about 75 to 150 pediatric deaths from influenza every year. One. One pediatric death that year. I mean, our hospital is is loaded with respiratory syncytial virus, you know, associated with bronchiolitis. None. I mean, so that's it. If you want to stop respiratory viruses, it's not that hard. Just never leave your house. <laughs> you leave your house. Um, they've come back. I, I don't think, I think the hygiene hypothesis, I, I really don't think applies to this because it's always been brought up with regard to vaccines, right? We're now eliminating certain viruses. Therefore, because of that, you know, we're sort of biasing our immune system towards this uh, TH2 rather than TH1 response, and therefore we're, we're more likely to have these allergic phenomena, asthma, et cetera. I don't think that that really applies to vaccines, um, and I don't think it applies to this. But I think what will be really interesting is how this plays out, I, because and you, you alluded to this earlier, um, this virus isn't going anywhere. I mean, we are going to be dealing with this virus for decades. Remember, the first two human coronaviruses that were isolated in the early 1960s were both derived from bats. Um, one of them probably came into the human population in the late 1700s, the other in the late 1800s. I think we're going to be dealing with this virus for decades, if not centuries. And the question is, how will it play out? Knowing that every year, three and a half to four million children are born in this country who are completely susceptible to the virus. And knowing that there are people who are immune compromised because we have such a variety of immune compromising agents now, much more so than we did 30 years ago. So, so those are going to be the people that are going to need to be, be protected as we move forward, depending on what this virus does. I mean, the, the four strains of human coronaviruses that circulate probably account for about 15 to 20 percent of the respiratory infections that come into our hospital every winter. Will, will this virus settle into that? Because this virus is different. I, I mean, this so-called multisystem inflammatory disease of children, where the, vi the virus basically teaches your immune system to react against the cells that line blood vessels. So you see children come in with not just lung disease, but heart disease, liver disease, kidney disease. These other viruses don't do that. But will this virus evolve away from that? I mean, multi-system inflammatory disease of children has virtually disappeared. So so we'll see what uh, what happens. Now, this is really interesting because I, I, I was you answered the question I was gonna ask, which is, do, is this just the natural, are we watching in a modern context with modern tools and modern susceptibilities and strengths, the introduction of a coronavirus, which has happened historically, you know, three other times, right? 
or is it four? How many, how many circulating coronaviruses? Four. That includes SARS-CoV-2 or without SARS-CoV-2? Uh, no, that, that, no, SARS-CoV-2 would be the, the, well, there's other ones too, but, but for, for in terms of common circulating, this would be the fifth. Got it. So are we now seeing like, the, you know, was there MISC in those times and we just never knew what that was, you know? Yeah, and, and I, don't, I don't think so. It's a pretty, I mean, MISC in our hospital is striking. I mean, many of those kids have to go to the intensive care unit. It is striking. Yeah. This, although well, the problem is right now is like every child who comes into our emergency department who has fever, who was COVID positive in the past month is considered to be having MISC. So it, it's, uh, whereas it's often not true. And so it's frustrating. Right, right. So there may be a little bit of hypervigilance going on. And that, and that kind of relates too to the idea of, and we'll, this is a good segue into children, right? Because you said, you know, two to three million kids are gonna be born into the world with with total susceptibility to this new coronavirus. But in, in many ways, that's how it's been for the other coronaviruses too, right? Because when you're born, you get that maternal immunity for what, about six months, uh, and then it's gone. So, but yet, there's some modulation of disease, or or is there? Because you're also pointing out that 15 to 20 percent of your respiratory infections that are getting admitted are these old school coronaviruses. That's right. So yeah, just curious, uh, you know, what what you think? Yeah. So we'll we'll see how this virus settles out. You know, you don't it, it, viruses can can evolve to become more virulent or less virulent. It, this virus may be evolving to become less virulent. We'll see. You would think from the virus's standpoint um, that it's always that the virus's advantage to be less virulent because it's never a, a, an advantage to the virus to kill you because then it can't do what it wants to do, which is just continue to live and spread from one person to the next. So there are there's some evidence that, that Omicron was less virulent. So we'll see how this plays out. I, I'm really curious. This winter, I think, will tell all about where we stand in terms of population immunity. Yeah, and, and one thing I want to double down on that you said earlier is we're trying to figure out how virulent a virus is uh, or a new variant is. It's difficult to do in the context of the changing level of population immunity. So yeah. that's the, and that's why, you, like you say, in the winter, let's see what happens as some of the neutralizing antibodies wane, but we still have these memory B and T cells from previous infection and from vaccination. Uh, and again, it comes back to, do you really need a booster for most levels of population versus those elders and those younger people with multiple chronic diseases that are at risk? And now back to back to kids. So I, I want to kind of set a stage about what are what are our kids at risk for with this virus? What's at stake? And then where does vaccine fit into this picture? Um, we talked about MISC, and that's largely disappearing now, which is interesting, right? Uh, what about um, severe disease and death in kids? And then what about long COVID and what is that? And how do we think about that and what's going on? Hey, sorry to interrupt this episode. It's Dr. Z. Just a quick pitch here. If you can just leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, it helps us a lot. I also wanna hear what you think about this episode when you're done listening. Hello at zdogmd.com. It's the best way for me to hear your voice because the emails come right to me. And we don't have a comment section on most podcast platforms. Maybe Spotify has one, but nobody else does. So it really gets your voice involved on episodes, especially that don't have a video. And the third thing is if you wanna be a part of this community and support the show, join our supporter tribe, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. You can join on YouTube, Locals, Facebook, Instagram. You get live videos with me where we're talking about these things in depth, uncensored, and your comments are fully incorporated as in real time. And then we do these Zoom meetings where it's really like a beautiful community where we share our experiences on the awakening journey list journey. 
how are we going to transform ourselves so we can transform healthcare and education and government? Because those systems are epiphenomena of us. Until we wake up, those systems will stay asleep. They'll, they're just an expression of our own delusion. So being a part of that, it supports this message so others can hear it. And it also allows for our own collective growth. So we need each other in that way. It's really, really, really tightly interwoven and interdependent. That's it. Back to your regular schedule, regularly scheduled show. There. Right. So, so on June 15th, the FDA, our FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee met to discuss Pfizer and Moderna's vaccine for children less than five. And the, the, so the first issue that the CDC addressed was what's the burden of illness? And, and they argued that for the past previous two years, that if you look in that age group, that there's been roughly 45,000 hospitalizations. Of those hospitalizations, 10,000 of those hospitalizations resulted in ICU admissions, intensive care unit admissions. There were about 420 to 430 deaths in that age group. Now, there's a couple limitations there. One is that was the previous two years. So that doesn't necessarily predict what's going to happen in the next two years where there's a much higher level of population immunity. Two is it's, 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 oh, the, the other point they made was that about two thirds of those children had no known risk factors. So one, only one third had high risk factors. But the, the other issue is, it's, and it really is important for us to separate children who are admitted with or for COVID. And, and, because you see some of these studies now where they're looking just at a simple metric like oxygen requirement. And, and that eliminates a lot of people who are just being eliminated. Uh, with COVID and not uh, for it, not for the treatment of it. Because we, we will screen everyone who comes into our hospital will be screened to see whether they have, they have COVID. And I think those statistics can get mixed up. So, so that's also important. And, and I think as we move forward, uh, knowing that there are certain groups who are, that are susceptible, when will be the best time to immunize? And I think that, that we're going to learn about that over time. I mean, you know, with HPV, we immunize for in the adolescent age group, even though arguably, you know, there are certainly children who are born to, to women who are HPV, who have HPV, who will then get this so-called so re recurrent respiratory papillomatosis, you know, that they'll get in the first few months of life. So so when you immunize is, is going to be an issue. And I'm really interested to learn how this plays out. Children certainly can get this virus and they certainly can get it severely. I, I was on service last week. We had a child who, who had a pretty severe COVID pneumonia. I mean, he had it for a couple of weeks. I mean, if, when you saw his his chest X-ray and his his CT of his chest, it was brutal, and he was really struggling to breathe. So, so, so if this so if this disease can be prevented safely, then it, it should be prevented. But when is the best time to do that? I think we'll find that out as we move forward. Yeah, it's really interesting because I've, I've thought about this quite a bit, but even in the context of the preventable childhood illnesses that we use vaccines for now: measles, mumps, rubella, et cetera. Uh, because a lot of people will push back and say, well, this particular syndrome really hurts the elders and people with multiple chronic diseases, but it's so unusual to harm a child. But what you're pointing at is, well, okay, but let's say the child that the children that are harmed, it's terrible. And a lot of, and, and a fair number of them have no pre-existing conditions. So you're not, you don't have a good warning that that child is at risk. If you have something that is very safe and you can administer in a mass vaccination, why wouldn't you do it if you can prevent even, you know, 400 deaths of children a year? Those are ch children that would have grown, had a whole life ahead of them. Uh, am I understanding that calculus correctly? Exactly. So there's been what, you know, there's been uh, a million deaths roughly in, in this country from from that virus, from this virus, and about a thousand roughly in children. It depends. We somewhere between a thousand fifteen hundred. That's 0.1 percent. So obviously you're much much worse off if you're an older person than if you're a younger person. But you know. That if the virus can cause harm and it can't, I mean, same with flu. I mean, there's 75 to 150 flu deaths a year, whereas, you know, sometimes there's, there's many thousands of flu deaths. So that's a small percentage again. 
But if it can be prevented safely, then it should be pre- then it should be prevented. And I think that's that's where people. Um, I mean, if you look, for example, at the twelve to fifteen year old, what, what percentage of twelve to fifteen year olds are vaccinated? About sixty percent. That vaccine's been out since last May, more than a year. Um, if you look at the the five to eleven year old, about thirty percent, a little more than thirty percent have been vaccinated for a vaccine that's been out since last November. So you're already you know seven months into this. And now we have this vaccine, which is out for the less than five-year-old. I'm sure it's going to be well less than 30%. I'd be surprised if it was 15% of parents of that that age group vaccinated. So why? Why do they choose not to do that? I think two reasons. I think one is because they just don't see their children as likely to get this disease or suffer, because that's not what they hear. They hear correctly that it's mostly the older people who die. And two, because we're always a little hesitant about inoculating our child with a biological agent that we don't understand very well. And we assume that a choice to do nothing is a risk-free choice when it's not. It's just a choice to take a different risk. I mean, so that's your goal as a parent is take the lesser risk. Um, that's our job. Yeah, now that's key. You're you're always taking a risk no matter what you do. And so the question is, what's the risk you're comfortable with or the risk that's lesser in your mind or in your calculation of risk? So let's then dive into the less than five-year-old vaccines, um, which are... Um, this has been very tough on a lot. It's, so there are a lot of parents that really have been desperate for this, and they'll take almost any level of evidence that says, okay, it, it's not going to hurt my kid. I, I want to give it to them. I'm, I'm, I'm quite anxious about this. And then there's groups of parents that are like, you got to show me a multi-thousand person randomized trial where I don't see cases of you know myocarditis or anything unusual, and I want to see outcomes that show that it's actually preventing severe disease. And and then there's people in between that just don't quite know what to do with it. And so I'm curious how you kind of think about this. And you've seen the data. You sit on the committee. Like, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on the less than five-year-old vaccine? Right. Um, it's, it's interesting. It's exactly what you said. When the 12 to 15-year-old vaccine was available, there was a huge spike in uptake. And then it immediately came down and really never recovered. Same thing with the 5 to 11. Huge. So there are those parents who want to get it. They're going to get it the minute it comes out. And that's it. Then, then we're done. And I'm sure that, that that's probably going to be what happens here. Spike come right back down again. Um, it's 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 interesting. The, the, it's the first time I would say we ever considered vaccines for any age group, whether it was the adults back in December of, of 2020 or then the 12 to 15 year old and then the 5 to 11 year old, where there was a divergence between those two vaccines, um, the Moderna and Pfizer mRNA vaccines. I mean, the, the, the Moderna vaccine is a two dose vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine is a three dose vaccine. Now, we were supposed to meet, actually, uh, we, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, were supposed to meet in February, sort of towards the end of February of this year to discuss um, Pfizer's vaccine, I think, as, as, as a two-dose vaccine. And then, then we didn't meet. And I think it's because the data were so poor after the second dose, both in terms of immune response as well as protective efficacy, that they, they were going to wait till they finished their third dose trial. And, and with that, you saw that there clearly was a boost in immunity, that if you look at the immunobridging studies, meaning the, the neutralizing antibody levels that were seen in those children was essentially identical to what was seen in the 16 to 25-year-old group where you knew there was protection. Um, and there was, you know, protection again. The numbers were really, really small, like 10 total kids had actually symptomatic illness. So you couldn't say anything about efficacy, but you were reassured by the immunobridging data. And same thing with Moderna, because see, right now, the protection against mild disease, which is what most kids get, is not very good with these vaccines because they're because of Omicron and now the Omicron variants. You know, when, when the studies were done way back, you know, for the adults and even the 12 to 15 year old and even to some extent, no, not so much the 5 to 11 year old, but the 12 to 15 year old. Then, you know, Delta was still the, the circulating strain. So even efficacy against mild disease looked good. It doesn't look good now, but 
I'm trying to figure out a nice way to say this. Who cares? It, it, the goal is preventing severe illness. It's okay. The, 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 we're going to have to get used to mild illness. This is a short incubation period, mucosal respiratory infection. It has an incubation period of whatever, four to six days. That is short. And so while you may have great memory responses, it takes too much time for activation of those memory cells to become, say, in the case of memory B cells, antibody screening cells, to prevent a mild infection. I mean, you need a long incubation period, two to three weeks, in order to for that to happen, which is what happens with measles. You can eliminate measles because it has a long incubation period, meaning two to three weeks. You can eliminate smallpox, You can elim- which we've done. We actually eliminated measles from this country by 2000 until a critical percentage of parents chose not to vaccinate their children anymore. We eliminated rubella by 2005. Why? Because it's a long incubation period disease. You will never eliminate this virus because it's a short incubation period. If 100% of this country is va- is, and this world is vaccinated, this virus will still circulate and it will still cause mild disease. And at some point, we're going to have to get used to that because we're coming off this sort of zero tolerance with this virus. No asymptomatic infection, no mildly symptomatic infection. Test, test, test quarantine, quarantine, quarantine. And at some point, we're, we're, and it's happening. I mean, you're already seeing sort of an erosion where people are willing to, to accept the fact that we're going to be living with mild illness for this, for my lifetime, my children's lifetime, and their children's lifetime. And, and <laughs> so, th- I mean, this is what I think you and I and others have been advocating for a while, that eventually we're going to get to an equilibrium point where this thing, like you said, because of the incubation period, because of the fact that you cannot prevent infection, it's not going away, and there's animal reservoirs. So on top of all that, unless you want to murder all the deer and all the cats and all that, which, you know, there's some allure to a mass murder of uh, animals. I believe we do it when we eat our burgers. Uh, it's, it's not going to work. And so one of the questions then becomes, Paul, because you said, you know, the the... It, it becomes a tipping point of the community benefit of the vaccination versus the individual benefit. And where do mandates as a public policy tool come in? Early on, we were talking about mandates, and this was in the early days of vaccine, and it was like, you know, people were dying, people weren't getting vaccinated, and so employers were throwing in mandates, schools were throwing in mandates, et cetera. Where, what is the role of the mandate for a, because we don't mandate influenza vaccine except for healthcare workers generally, do, do, do we continue to put in mandates for the coronavirus vaccine in this new setting of population immunity and living with the virus? Or is it now not a useful policy tool relative to, say, measles, where if you stop immunizing children, that disease comes back with a vengeance? I, I guess I put it right now in the category of flu where I think it's reasonable to, to, uh, to mandate it for healthcare workers as we do at our hospital because we take care of people with COVID and you can transmit that virus from one person to the next as we do with flu. So I think, um, I think it's reasonable there. I, I guess I'm not at mandate yes for, yet for this virus for, for, let's say, for school entry. I, I'm not there. I, I will see how it plays out, but I'm, I'm not there. Right. So for the kids' vaccine, I think one of the concerns a lot of people have is if it's approved, even as EUA, schools are going to start mandating it. And License. I think. Oh, you mean so, approved for EUA that they would mandate? I'd, I'd be right, surprised, yeah. actually. I, first of all, um, you know, we're just I feel like you're leaning into a left hook right now if you if you mandate it, given given sort of the, the attitudes um, that people have about this vaccine. It's just what scares me more, frankly, is that. The, the, this sort of, you know, government off my back, don't tell me what to do, is going to spill over into other vaccines. And you're going to see an erosion in, in, in mandates in general. And, and do that, and these vaccines will come back. The, I'm sorry, these diseases will come back. Agree. And I think that's why our public health messaging around the COVID vaccine is so important. You know, some nuance and some, the kind of way you talk about it, where actually 
a, a rather skeptical audience actually trust you about vaccine is because you're actually quite forthright and authentic about, okay, here are risks, here are benefits, here are what I would do for my kid, here's what I, that, that, that's kind of how I think we ought to talk. And it then doesn't create this reactance that spills over because it really triggers the sort of libertarian antibodies in this country when you start mandating, say, a two-year-old to go to a preschool has to have a vaccine that has, what, how many 400-odd people in each trial arm and, you know, so on and so forth. Do you think that, do you think so far the evidence of safety in that population is sufficient to vaccinate children? Yes, I, I think because we're, we're sort of testing, the, keep testing the water with one foot in a sense. I mean, you have, you know, you, you, you knew that, for example, so myocarditis is what one worries about. And what you worry about, it was what I worried about is that, that when you did that study saying the greater than 16-year-old for Pfizer, the greater than 18-year-old for Moderna, Moderna had the bigger problem. It was really the young person who had myocarditis. I mean, the, the sort of less than 30-year-old. So now you're going to the 12 to 15-year-old. First of all, why was it the young person? And, and the, the thinking behind myocarditis is, is that there, it's molecular mimicry. So in other words, that you have the, the sort of the heavy chain of, of uh, alpha myosin on your heart muscle, um, you know, mimics the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. So while you're making an immune response to the spike protein, you're inadvertently making an immune response to your own heart muscle. Now, the good news is that was a transient, short-lived, generally self-resolving phenomenon. When we see it in our hospital, those children were often in the hospital for a couple of days, rarely went to the ICU, virtually never went to the ICU. We really didn't do much, and then it got better. That's good, but you have to assume that there's a spectrum of illness uh, because that's always true. So, and you have to assume that there may be long-term problems because that is, is, is certainly possible. So as you move down to the 12 to 15 year old, it was reassuring that although it could occur, it occurred less commonly. And then as you move down to the five to 11 year old, it occurred even less commonly. So, so I feel that, that we're jumping to some extent with the net here. I mean, the, the, this is the most studied vaccine in history. And Maurice Hilleman, who I consider to be the father of modern vaccines, and I was fortunate enough to know, uh, you know, for the years that he was at, at Merck. I mean, he's, you know, the, the primary researcher or developer of nine of the 14 vaccines that we give to children. It's like trying to imagine, you know, a, another dimension, how much work he did that was, uh, was successful. But he said it best. He said, I never, quote, I never be the sigh of relief until the first three million doses are out there. Well, the first three billion doses are out there. So we have a lot of information on this this vaccine. So yeah, I mean, if I had uh, my children are, uh, um, you know, of an age where they can start to have children, I would recommend that they vaccinate those children um, in a second. And again, based on your understanding of the safety and the fact that even if you can prevent a severe disease and it's rare in those kids, why wouldn't you do it if the safety threshold's quite good? Right. I mean, look at meningococcus. You know, how many how many cases of meningococcus are there in the United States? 300? Um, you know, but that's a severe disease and occasionally fatal disease. So- yeah, I mean, I guess it. we all have our biases. I work at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and so we I see some of these. Well, I just don't service last week, and this is not a peak, you know, COVID time right now. And there was one a perfectly healthy uh, boy who um, really was struggling. And you looked at his chest X-ray and his CT scan, and it was brutal. I mean, I, I just felt so badly for him struggling. Yeah. You know, so you point out our biases and stuff. What's interesting about you, Paul, uh, this is just a meta comment on this, is you, you, you know, you're a guy who went through this system. You know, you worked in conjunction with pharmaceutical companies to develop a vaccine. You're an expert on these things. And what's interesting is that you're not ideologically possessed. In other words, if, if something happens like this booster thing with Omicron, you're gonna question quite hard, even though it might cost that pharmaceutical company a ton of money, if they took the decision you're recommending, which is to wait and get more data. Uh, that's what you're doing because that's 
the integrity of the position. And again, I think we ought to have our public officials, our public scientists, when 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 they look like they're ideologically possessed by their own bias, nobody trusts them <laughs> except for people who are possessed by the same ideology. And that's why I think it's important. Your voice is so important in all this. Now, speaking of which, have you-, know, you- wait, wait, Let me just oh. have one thing because you really raise a really good point. It, it's the, the opposite is true for somebody like me. I mean, so I was fortunate enough with Stanley Plack and then Fred Clark to create the strains that became the bovine human reassortant vaccine rotatec. So, so it's, it's, so we spent 10 years doing the research to try and figure out how to create these essentially combination of viruses that could induce an immune response without uh, causing disease. I mean, that was 10 years worth of work. And then there's like another 15 years of, of doing the research of development, meaning to get the right buffering agent, the right stabling lacing agent, the right dose, the right dosing interval. Um, the right right vial, I mean, do real-time stability studies, do all of that. It's a 26-year effort, okay? And then, you know, as, as the old Chinese proverb goes, when the gods are angry, they grant you your wish. Okay, so now this is a vaccine. This is a vaccine that's been licensed and, and uh, by the Food and Drug Administration and approved for universal use in children in the United States. It was a nauseating moment. I, I know you would think it would be the opposite because what you're scared of is, what have we done? I mean, you saw what happened with the previous vaccine. I mean, there was a vaccine that was available in the late 1990s um, that was made by Wyeth with researchers at the NIH that was a simian human reassortant vaccine that was found when it was out in, in the real world to be a cause of uh, intestinal blockage called interception. That was a surprise. So, so Fred and I, Dr. Clark and I remember sort of pouring through gene databases. Is there anything about the surface proteins of this virus that mimics, say, cells on the, that line your synovium, you know, that where we could be inducing arthritis? Anything that's similar that could be inducing an immune response against pancreatic islet cells that could cause diabetes? I mean, is there anything that would mimic, say, you know, neuronal cells where you would cause any sort of de demyelinating disease? Have we, what have we wrought? I mean, you have, you are now having your, 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 your wishes coming through. You are about to put this into millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of children. And you just hold your breath. It is a, it's, it's a, a nauseating moment in many ways um, to wait to see what happens. So in many ways, I feel like people like me or, or, or Dr. Clark and Dr. Clark are exactly the people you want doing this because we know just what it means to do this, I think. Oh man. See, and, and this, that. <laughs> this is why you when, when we talk about the death of expertise, right, it is really quite heartbreaking because there are experts and there are experts. So someone who's been through the mill, who's who's actually has the humility to go, he, this is still terrifying because we, there, we don't know what we don't know sometimes. And we've tried everything to know what we do not know and, and control for that. But there's still this thing. And that's why Hilleman's quote of like, you, you never breathe a sigh of relief until it's in three million arms is, I think, the central premise. And again, let, let's go back this. to COVID. You're, you're the one who did this. You're the one who made these strains. You're the one who's now put it out there. I mean, it's your name on it at some level. Therefore, you're responsible. I mean, you're not going to be held responsible, but but you are responsible for this. Man, that gives me chest pain just just putting myself in your shoes. <laughs> and I, and I, I don't easily get chest pain anymore. Um, wow. So, okay. So let's then bring it back to um, to to real life situations. Have you yet gotten COVID? Yes, I got COVID about a month ago. Just a month ago, after all this time, just a month, you got you got COVID. So the presumably an Omicron strain, right? I would assume, or an Omicron subvariant. Yeah. And and you can refuse to answer any of these questions if you like, because I'm going to ask personal questions. <laughs> how how many doses of the vaccine did you get, and what roughly is your age and comorbidities? 
Right. So I can actually tell you exactly my age. It's 71. But the, the, um, so I got, had three doses. And the, the last dose that I got was a, a year earlier. So I got it in May of, of 2021. Um, technically I'm because I'm over 65, I was recommended to receive a fourth dose. I felt that that didn't, um, that didn't make me less likely to, to get a severe disease. I felt that I was protected against severe disease with three doses. I didn't think I needed the fourth dose for that. I thought what the fourth dose would do for me is it would protect me against what happened to me a month ago, but for how long? And I think the answer to that is probably three to six months. So I didn't see the need for the constant booster dosing. I assumed I would likely be exposed to this virus because it's just especially these viruses like BA5, especially now, which is kind of rampant, is just a highly contagious virus. And also, when you have the really contagious viruses that are highly transmissible, you need an even higher level of neutralizing antibodies, you know, to, to really prevent that. So basically, my attitude was I may well get this. I'm going to I'm going to be, I'm, you know, I went to my son's wedding, you know, which is, you know, a lot of people and. You know, it's I go to sporting events, which is a lot of people, and I realize that at some point I'm going to be exposed to this virus, and but I'm presuming I'm going to get a mild illness, which I got. I mean, I had it for a couple of days. I, technically, I also should have received Paxlovid, but I just felt like the next day I was largely better. And also Paxlovid, now it's now been tested. It was tested initially just in people who were uh, unvaccinated. Now it's been tested more in people who are vaccinated. But I didn't, I just thought I was going to get better on my own and did. How about that? So you actually analyzed your own risk and made decisions based on your tolerance and understanding of your own risk. Heaven forbid. I'm generally healthy. I mean, I don't take any medicine. Yeah. I, I, there's nothing. No, I have no chronic disease. I'm not on any medicine, actually. Um, so, so I just assumed that even though I'm over 70, that I would survive this. And by definition, I did since we're doing this program. Right. Yes. There's a survivorship bias here. Uh, now, so how much how much long COVID do you have? I need to ask that, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. I, You're good. I what, what, because I'm, I, do, I do think my my vaccination status makes me a lesser risk of long COVID. Yeah. Now, and that's what question I wanted to ask too is so with with things like long COVID, both in children and adults, which we don't really understand well, um, do you think the vaccine actually has an impact on that arising? Do we have good data I, I, for that? I, I think I think you you know. I can, I with, and with you, I don't really understand this phenomenon. I, I think we're going to explain it much better over time. I think virologically, immunologically, psychologically, I think we will have much more information over time about this particular phenomenon. Um, I, I'm struck by the fact when you look at sort of these meta-analyses of long COVID, the one symptom that always rises to the top is fatigue, you know, so we really need to define these things in, in more objective ways, and it's going to be hard. Um, I do think, though, you're much more likely to suffer this if you were have a severe illness than if you if you if you have a mild illness. Which is not to say it's not possible if you have a mild illness to suffer, because I think it is. But and and I'm really curious to know what the the basis of this is. And I think we will learn that over time. I, mean, I, I don't think it's one thing. I think it's sort of like saying something like cancer, which is many things. I think long COVID is many things, and we'll we'll learn about that over time. Yeah, I think I think the term biopsychosocial applies more than any other disease. It applies to all diseases, but there's a biological trigger, there's a social component, and there's a psychological component. And they all interact in a way that it makes it very difficult to reduce it to one answer. Yeah. Um, wow, Paul. So, hey, man, every six months we get together, you school us, people get either reassured or terrified or a mix of a toxic stew of both. Um, what any, did, is there anything we didn't talk about that you may, we wanna make sure this audience understands before the next time we talk? Uh, no, we, we actually talked about all the things actually that are interesting to me in this. I am curious to see how this plays out regarding the bivalent vaccine because 
we really need much better data, I think, before we move forward on this. And I can only hope that it's coming because I feel very strongly about my no vote there. In fact, the only reason I voted no was because hell no was not a choice. <laughs> That's how I felt about this. It's just we need more data. Ah, my favorite luminary of all the things, Dr. P. Diddy, Paul Offit. Man, thank you, brother, as always. What's next on the uh, social agenda for you? Anything fun? No, no, no. I pretty much just uh, work. <laughs> See, really now you're now now you're living up to to my ideals of what a what an academic leader should be. <laughs> All right, brother. Thanks so much, guys. Share the show. Uh, if you want to join our supporter tribe, do it. If not, no big deal. Uh, we're just going to keep trying to speak the truth as we see it. And we are out. Peace. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Jose. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I want to hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.